Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We, when we are saved, we are instantly filled with the Spirit and in fellowship. But when we sin, Scripture says we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. It breaks that fellowship with God. Scripture says we, at that instant we are no longer walking by the Holy Spirit, but we are walking according to the sin nature. And until we recover fellowship recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, we cannot advance in our spiritual growth and spiritual life. So since we learn the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we always take a few moments for silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the teaching of His Word. So we'll start with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has not only revealed yourself to us in your word, that you have, in the process of revealing yourself, guaranteed that that which the authors, the human authors of Scripture wrote was that which had been breathed out by God the Holy Spirit and was preserved in the written text of the original manuscripts to be free from error. Father, we thank you that you have also given us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand the things that you have revealed to us, that it is your Holy Spirit who helps us to see how these things apply in our own lives. And as we advance and grow in the spiritual life, we see more clearly what it means to apply these things, how they are to be applied, and spiritual growth results. Father, it is all the work of grace and has nothing to do with our own works or our own merit. Now, Father, as we come to a study of your word again this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we might better understand how to glorify you as we advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will resume our study with a brief review of the uh, of verse 7. We'll start about verse 7. Last time we got into this passage, which is one of the, uh, deals with one of the more controversial issues facing churches, and that is the issue of church discipline. The problem is that in some churches it's completely ignored, in other churches it's practiced too heavily. 
But the biblical teaching is clear that there are times when it is necessary to remove someone from participation in a congregation, in the assembly, in the teaching of the word due to their carnality and their sins and to make that a matter of public record. Now, this is always been a problem. As we see in this passage, there is a list of sins that Paul mentions, but this is not an exclusive list. It is not a definitive list. In fact, there's one list in verse 10, and in verse 11, a couple of categories of sin are mentioned that are not mentioned in verse 10, so it's not a definitive list. It is just sort of a summary of the kinds of things, kinds of sins that may need to be addressed in the matter of church discipline. During the time of the Puritans, Cotton Mather, who was one of the foremost Puritan uh, theologians, comprised a broad list of sins that were worthy of church discipline. They included swearing, cursing, Sabbath-breaking, drunkenness, fighting, defamation, fornication, unchastity, cheating, stealing, idleness, lying, and such heresies as manifestly overturned the foundations of the Christian religion and of all piety. Other lists of discipline-inducing offenses have included political and social evil slaveholding, participation in civil government, involvement in the military and in war, child labor, excessive profits, collaboration with oppressive governments, usury, racial discrimination, smuggling, cockfighting, bull-baiting, tax evasion, and rioting. See, over the history of Christianity, all kinds of different things have made the big list as to what should not be participated in by members of the congregation. What we have to do is take a hard look at the passages that are usually referred to and decide just what the limits are of church discipline. In fact, too often what you find is that church discipline policies tend to follow the extremes of the sin nature. Remember, everybody has a sin nature. Every believer still possesses the same wonderful sin nature we had before we were saved. And it's still capable of all the range of sins that were ours before we were saved. Now, five minutes after you're saved, you're no better a person, no worse a person than you were before you were saved. The only difference is that now, positionally, you are in Christ, and positionally you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, and therefore you are justified, and you have, a, you have been regenerated. You have a human spirit now, and you are uh, a child of God and have been adopted into the royal family of God. But since... Application of doctrine is built on first knowing and understanding doctrine. You can't do much at five minutes after you're saved in terms of application of doctrine because you haven't been taught much. There's not much there in the soul that the Holy Spirit has put there in order for you to apply it. So application of doctrine takes time and is related to the amount of of uh, doctrine in the soul. So if somebody doesn't learn much or they're involved in a congregation that doesn't teach much, if they're involved in a congregation where morality is equated to spirituality, then they will not advance spiritually. They may advance in terms of their moral life, but remember, morality is not spirituality. That's one of the greatest uh, points of confusion in the doctrine of the spiritual life. That's not to say that 
spirituality is immorality, but morality is something that is possible for every member of the human race, whether they're a believer or not. Unbelievers can be quite ethical and quite moral, and some unbelievers can manifest tremendous degrees of morality that outshine believers. The Pharisees at the time of Christ were some of the most moral people overtly of all time. They're called hypocrites by Christ, and that is because they are trying to gain approbation with God on the basis of their own works. But the issue is that they are very moral, and that is why Jesus made the point many times that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, then we could not see the kingdom of God. And the point was not that the Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees needed to be more righteous or that people needed to be more righteous. But in terms of that day, there was no group of people who exemplified a higher standard of personal ethics and personal morality and religious morality as distinct from what the Bible teaches, religious morality based on human effort, human works, than the Pharisees. They were the the greatest criterion. If you wanted to see what morality, ultimate picture of human morality was, you looked at the Pharisees. And so Jesus said, that's the best man can do. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to do better. And people thought, how in the world can we do better than the scribes and the Pharisees? That's impossible. So morality doesn't cut it. Morality just isn't enough. There has to be regeneration, first of all, in order to be saved. And then in order to advance in the spiritual life, it has to be done by means of the Holy Spirit. That was the whole point that Paul made to the Galatians. And Galatians 3.3, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to be matured by means of the flesh or the sin nature? Because remember, the sin nature also produces morality along with uh, personal sins. So the sin nature produces extremes towards either legalism or licentiousness, and the standards adopted by church discipline usually reflect the views of a congregation and, and the trends of the sin natures in that congregation. So if you have a congregation where the pastor has a trend towards licentiousness and the pastor's trend is, is to somehow overlook sin and not make a big deal about personal sin because that's the trend of his sin nature, then you're likely to have a situation where church discipline is never practiced, never talked about, and in some cases that I know of, uh, the, the scriptures are so perverted in terms of the exegesis that they're made to teach that you don't do anything. And, and I even know of one instance where a pastor teaches, well, this was just an example of a, a holdover of the Pharisaic legalism on Paul's part, and it really shouldn't uh, be applied in the church today. I mean, those kinds of uh, extremes are talked about in order to uh, somehow get past the point that, that the believer is to be living a life where he is dealing with on the basis of the filling of the holy spirit and the word of god with his own sin nature and the church is not to uh, condone the church is not to legitimize the church is not to uh, treat lightly uh, overt sin that that is taking place in the lives of members of the congregation on the other hand, we have to recognize that everybody has a sin nature and everybody's going to continue to sin throughout their spiritual life and it's not the responsibility of other believers to be the sanctifying agent in the life of 
other believers. That's the role of God, the Holy Spirit. We're not supposed to be engaged in the process of personal criticism and personal, uh, personally trying to get somebody else to straighten out their life. That is also illegitimate. And the truth lies in an understanding uh, balance of the issues as they are explained in this particular passage. So we have to uh, watch out for the polar extremes. Now, the problem that is brought forth in the church in Corinth is a problem of a man who is living with his stepmother. He is in, involved. We have a euphemism for sexual involvement in verse 1, that a man has his father's wife. Now, this, as I pointed out last time, was considered to be an extremely egregious breach of morality in the ancient world, not among, it was forbidden in the Mosaic law, but it was also illegal in Roman law. According to Roman law, mentioned both by Cicero prior to the time of Christ and Gaius about a hundred years after the time of Christ, you have clear references to the fact that this was a sin that was considered to be, or this was an activity that was considered to be not only quite shocking to everybody, but it was also illegal. And I think that's a clue to somehow understanding what's going on in this passage in terms of church discipline. It's not just that the person commits an act or has committed an act of immorality. It's not simply that he's living with somebody without benefit of marriage. It is that his particular sin is one that shocks and appalls the unbelievers. It is not the fact that it shocks and appalls other believers because, frankly, the Corinthians were were not shocked or appalled. They were, in fact, probably proud, arrogant about the fact that they were so grace-oriented that we can let this go on in our congregation, and uh, and that just shows how wonderful the grace of God is. So they had turned grace up on its ear and were ignoring this sin that was creating a tremendous amount of conflict, and and it was well known throughout the ancient world or throughout. Corinth and Greece, that this was going on, and it shocked the unbeliever. So Paul comes along, and he addresses the issue from the vantage point of his apostolic authority. I think that's the first thing we have to understand here in terms of church discipline, is that there are two elements of of, uh, of discipline here. One is that which uniquely flows from Paul's apostolic authority, and this is involved in his turning uh, such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in verse 5, which is means that he is to be taken out of the congregation and is not to be uh, not to be exposed to the teaching of his words of, of the word of God, so that he can reap the consequences of his own sin nature. And that's the point there, that deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that is, the sin nature. It's not physical flesh, but the destruction of his sin nature. In other words, let him uh, reap what he's been sowing so that perhaps he may uh, change his mind. And we know from 2 Corinthians that's exactly what happened. But we also learn from 2 Corinthians that that uh, the the Corinthians really didn't still didn't understand the concept of grace. First, they were excusing sin and making light of it, and then once the guy uh, changed his mind, ended the relationship, confessed his sin, then they wouldn't let him back in. 
So they were not going to forgive him. So they never did understand grace. They're operating still on human viewpoint. Well, as Paul develops his, this, his, uh, his instruction to them, he's going to move from his own apostolic judgment, mentioned in verse 3, that I have already judged this one, to their responsibility not to associate with certain types of sinners. And that is not only a corporate recognition, but it also has a point of wisdom in terms of the individual life. And Paul is going to come back to this principle in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Perhaps this is uh, one of those verses that uh, uh, you, you mothers, if you are so inclined to do a little needlepoint, you ought to put this over your kid's door. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. And that's something that we often forget, but that's a biblical point that Paul makes, and that's what underlies, that's the principle that underlies the whole uh, issue of church discipline, is that once you let someone uh, get involved closely in your life who is licentious and treats sin lightly, it has an effect of contaminating and it's uh, contaminating other believers and it also before long causes other believers to begin rationalizing sin and treating sin lightly as well that's why paul comes down to verse 7 he says therefore purge out which is the verb to cleanse purge out in the new king james clean out in the new american standard from the verb katharizo meaning to to cleanse. This is the word that was used, uh, in, the same word that's used in 1 John 1 9 related to cleansing of sin. It was a word that was used in terms of ritual purification in the Old Testament, and that is the analogy that Paul uses here. He says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Now, I made the point last time that leaven is different from yeast. In yeast, if you are a baker and you bake bread, you introduce yeast to each new loaf. Yeast has a similar function to leaven, but leaven is, would be borrowed from a previous loaf. Like if you, if you were, if ever made sourdough bread, you have to take a, some of the sourdough from the previous uh, loaf, and then you take that and you use that in the new loaf, and that introduces the um, uh, leaven from the previous loaf. And so if that, for some reason, became contaminated, then it would introduce contamination then into the new loaf. And the picture, of course, that underlies this goes back to the feasts of Israel, that at the beginning of their uh, calendar, their ritual calendar, you have Passover, and Passover was also the first day of a week-long festival called the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And at the beginning of Passover, Jews would go through the house and they would cleanse the house from all leaven. They would go through uh, all of the cabinets. They would go check, go over all of the uh, uh, cooking surfaces, everything to make sure all leaven was removed from the house. And that is a picture of the spiritual life, whereas Passover is a picture of our salvation. The cleansing during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a picture of sanctification, that as the believer grows and advances, he is removing sin from his life under the filling of the Holy Spirit and the uh, influence of, and the teaching of God's Word in the believer's life. So they were to clean out the old leaven so they would be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. That refers to positional truth. The reality is that we are cleansed positionally at salvation, 
but we still commit many post-salvation sins, and so there has to be ongoing post-salvation cleansing, and that's why we use 1 John 1.9. And that is the explanation uh, and the last phrase, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. And in, unfortunately, in the English, there's a period after unleavened, and it should not be there, because the phrase... Uh, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed as an explanation of the reality of our being unleavened. That relates to the positional reality that we have in Christ. And then in verse 8, Paul draws the conclusion and application from this first paragraph. He says, let us therefore celebrate the feast. That is, that because Christ is our Passover, we've been saved. Let us go on to celebrate the feast, that is, of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Here he brings in four uh, adjectives, malice, wickedness, sincerity, and truth, and he juxtaposes these two. So that in terms of leaven, in terms of sin, he picks two categories, malice and wickedness. And he uses these Two nouns are let that doesn't show up very good. Somehow it's too wet on here and doesn't write well, Al. Didn't dry out well. Uh, malice is the Greek verb kakia. And kakia, K-A-K-I-A. Kakia. And kakia represents the range of mental attitude sins. It's translated malice in some passages. It's translated uh, uh, bitterness. It has. It represents the mental attitude sins that uh, would often be present. And as we're going to see later on in this passage, there is a problem with, uh, with uh, both mental attitude sins, especially arrogance in the congregation at Corinth, but also sins of the tongue and uh, slander and judging one another, and that comes up more in the next in the uh, next chapter. There's also the second word translated wickedness, and this is the Greek word poneria, P-O-N-E-R-I-A. And poneria is a general word describing the general operation of the sin nature and its production of overt sins. And the fact that both of these nouns are left without an article, and they are both modified by one noun, leaven, what you have is a noun uh, by means of leaven. Leaven is in the dative case, followed by two genitives, um, malice and wickedness. These are viewed as almost being used synonymously. They're, They're linked together in terms of a representation of the entire production of the sin nature. So these two are simply picked out as a general category uh, describing sin. In contrast to this, we are to celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I think sincerity, as I said last time, is a poor translation because you have so many people who think that they ought to have a relationship with God and they ought to be saved because people are so sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere and good, except it, sincerity never works as any kind of justification for law-breaking. Just, 
just try it next time you go through a, uh, you're speeding down the highway and some police officer pulls you over and you say, oh, officer, I was convinced the speed limit along here was 70. I didn't see that 45 mile an hour speed limit back there and, and I'm convinced it's, I'm sincere and see how far sincerity gets you. Sincerity is not the uh, best translation of this particular word. Remember, these two words are juxtaposed to one another. So instead of malice and wickedness, there should be sincerity and truth. Now, the Greek word for sincerity, Got the roll on backwards, got to go the other way. It's not room up here. Um, sincerity is the Greek, alekroneos. It is a compound, compound noun, alekronea, E-I-L-I-K-R-I-N-E-I-A. And the root here is from krino, meaning to judge or to make a decision. And it comes from really two Greek words. The first is ele, the initial prefix here, E-I-L-I which describe the warmth of the sun or the brilliance of the sun. And the second is the verb krino, which means to be tested, judged, or evaluated. And it came to mean purity because you are judged in the, in some light, in the light of a brilliant, something brilliant that exposes uh, corruption, exposes evil, exposes wrongdoing, wrongdoing. And in this sense, this word is a synonym for katharizo, or being cleansed. And so, therefore, it is a synonym for the believer who is living a life in fellowship, cleansed of personal sin through the use of 1 John 1.9. So the idea of sincerity really doesn't have to do with, with the concept of sincerity or genuineness, uh, as we think about that word in English. It has to do with that which has been purified and is cleansed of sin. So rather than having sin in the life, it's contrasted with having confessed sin and being purified or cleansed along with truth, which is the Word of God. In John 3.21, Jesus makes a statement, He who practices the truth comes to the light. And so when we uh, are, as believers, when we expose, our life is exposed to the truth of God's Word and sin is revealed, then we confess that sin because we know what the Word of God teaches, and then we are in a position where we can apply the Word of God and we can advance in our spiritual growth. So John 3.21 states, He who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been produced by God. Then John 8.32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is the Word of God that is the absolute truth, not a small t truth like a a mathematical principle that the uh, uh, shortest distance between two points is a straight line or 2 plus 2 equals 4 or the law of gravity. Those are truths with a small t. But this is truth with a capital T related to the eternal absolute truths of the thinking of God. 
Not that his thinking doesn't relate also to mathematics, it does, but this is related to that truth which relates to salvation and sanctification. It is the truth that makes you free from what? From First of all, from the penalty of sin, and second, from the power of sin in the believer's life. So the purpose of learning doctrine is to make us free from the impact of personal sin. And then in John 17:17, 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So it is the word of God that is truth. So in verse 8 of chapter 5, Paul is emphasizing the contrast between uh, living a life that is characterized by the sin nature versus a life that is characterized by confession of sin and application of Bible doctrine. Then starting in verse 9 down through the end of this of chapter 5, Paul is going to give some clarification and application of the doctrine that he has already discussed. In verse 9 he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. New American Standard translates that not to associate with immoral people. Now, the first thing we have to address is this reference to a letter. I wrote to you in my letter. This is not the present letter. This is a previous letter. This is an un, uh, uh, we know about the letter because of this reference, but we don't have any uh, evidence of what that letter contained. We don't. It's not an extant letter. It was not a letter that was inspired by God. And it was not to be part of Scripture, and that's. In indicative of the fact that just because a man was an apostle does not mean that everything he said or did was correct. Not everything the apostle Paul said or did was, or not everything that he said or everything that he wrote was inspired by God. Only certain things were inspired by God the Holy Spirit, and only certain of his writings were to be contained in the Scriptures. We know that he wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. He may have written more, but there's a reference in this epistle to some previous letter that is indicated here in verse 9. And there's also an indication in 2 Corinthians that there was another letter written in between uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So actually there were four epistles to the Corinthians, and the ones that we have are 2 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians. But since we don't have 1 and 3 Corinthians, we call 2nd and 4th Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So now I've got everybody confused. Good. So there's a previous letter. So this is an ongoing dialogue. And in the previous letter, he was explaining the same principle that as believers, we need to be careful with whom we associate. And apparently what he said in that letter was being distorted by the arrogant people who were in Corinth. Remember back in verse 4, there's obvi- in chapter 4, there's obviously a group there that is uh, running down Paul's authority, that they have rejected Paul's authority. They're making light of him. They are puffed up. Uh, we see this down in verses 18 through 21, that uh, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, and they are in reaction to the authority of the Apostle Paul. So they were probably taking what he said, 
not to associate with immoral people. And their, their response was, well, that's impossible. Just look at all the people we have to do business with. We have to engage in business with all kinds of people who are idolaters, people who are uh, involved in shady practices, people who are engaged in the, all of the um, uh, sexual activities of the mystery cults. How can we avoid that? See, Paul's just teaching legalism. Paul's out of line. Paul doesn't understand what it means to live in the real world. So let's not listen to the Apostle Paul. He's not in touch with reality. That was how they were distorting what he was saying. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in this letter not to associate with immoral people. Now he's going to clarify that. But first of all, we have to look at this verb because it is important. It is the verb, soon ana. Magnusti. It is a present passive infinitive from a verb that means to mix things together, to mix things, different ingredients together, and it came to mean association or just basic social intercourse. And so Paul states here, don't associate with immoral people. And the principle is just the same principle he's stating over in 1 Corinthians 15.33, that bad company corrupts good morals. People need to pay attention to who their friends are, who they socialize with, and who they spend time with because we are all influenced to some degree or another by uh, the people we associate with. And if you're running around and associating with unbelievers who are operating on human viewpoint all the time, then before long you're going to watch your own values begin to shift and change as you begin to live in the same way they do as you are influenced by those people. I've seen that happen time and time again, and it's especially true for adolescents. When you're a teenager, you're terribly influenced by peers, by what your friends think, and it's amazing how many adolescents think that their parents are just absolute idiots and that their parents fell off the turnip truck yesterday, and uh, when you're 16 years old, your parents have an IQ of about 50, and when you're 24, your parents suddenly have an IQ of about 150. It's amazing how smart your parents got in, in just a few years. But that's just because you got smart and you recognize that those people who are your parents have lived all this ahead of you. And uh, they've learned a lot and they're just trying to pass on a little wisdom to you from, from the mistakes they made or the mistakes they saw other people make. But you have to avoid uh, being closely involved with unbelievers. I know I often chafed at the fact that, that my parents would not allow me to have any close friends with anyone who is an unbeliever, and my parents especially, uh, as soon as I'd come home and I said, well, I'm going to go out on a date Friday night. Well, who's the girl? Is she a believer? That was always the first question. If I didn't know the answer to that with certainty, then there was going to be no date on Friday night. So that made an evangelist out of me, and I knew that if I was going to ask anyone out, that I needed to find out if they were a believer before we went any further. But that is important, and it's an important principle for parents to instill in their kids when they are getting to that age where they start to date and start to develop friendships because you never know how long those friendships are going to last. You never know when uh, some sort of emotional attraction is going to develop. You can go out on just a casual date with someone and discover that you have a lot of things in common, a lot of personality uh, traits in common, a lot of affinity, and the next thing you know, 
uh, you're becoming uh, very emotionally involved with someone who's an unbeliever, and the most important issues in your life can never be shared with that individual. And then what happens is, and I've seen this happen time and time again, you get married, and then five or ten years down the road, uh, the, the wife or the husband is moaning and groaning about the fact that they can't ever talk with their spouse about the things that are really significant in their life, and that is their relationship with the Lord and spiritual things. And so there's always a certain level of superficiality to that relationship that eventually is going to become a major problem. So you have to cut it off at the very beginning and just don't put yourself in a situation where that can happen. Just take my word for it. So Paul issues this warning in verse 9 that I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then in verse uh, 10, he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people. And here he's using that same general word for immorality, pornos, that he used to describe the uh, the sin of the man back in verse 1. But his immorality, remember I said last time, uh, pornos is a word that is a general word for a vast host of, uh, of uh, immoral- forms of immorality, and it can be milder forms of immorality, like uh, somebody who just uh, likes to go out and engage in a one-night stand every now and then, to somebody who's involved in necrophilia and bestiality and, and pedophilia. So there's all kinds of different forms of immorality. And Paul says here, I didn't mean to at all that you shouldn't associate with the immoral people of this world. See, Paul's a realist. Every unbeliever has only one option, and that is to follow the dictates of their sin nature. Now, their dictates may involve overt sin, may involve mental attitude sin, or they may have a trend towards uh, legalism and self-righteousness, and so they're dominated more by by morality and human good, which the Bible classifies as filthy rags type of good works. It's not good works that have any kind of value in terms of the spiritual life. But Paul recognizes that unbelievers have only one option, and that is to live on the basis of the sin nature. No matter who they are, how wonderful they are, no matter what personality they might have, if they are an unbeliever, they live on the basis of the sin nature, and they are in perpetual carnality by definition. And Paul's a realist, and he says, well, there's no way you can avoid that when you're dealing with an unbeliever because all unbelievers are by nature that way. They don't have an option because they're not saved. Only believers who are regenerate have an option under the power of God the Holy Spirit. So he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. It's not possible. So Paul recognizes their, uh, the realities of living in a fallen world. Believers live in the midst of a fallen world. We're surrounded by all kinds of paganism, human viewpoint, thinking, and immorality. But nevertheless, we're not to be influenced by that. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. There is to be a distinction between the way the believer thinks and the way the believer lives his life. Now, he mentions three specific sins in verse 10. He mentions being covetous, and this is the Greek word pleonectes, pleonectes. 
And this is not just somebody who's materialistic or somebody who makes a good profit in their business. This is somebody who is uh, obviously motiva- motivated by materialism lust and uh, the lust for money, but is someone who, who is motivated by that all of the time and is probably uh, the kind of person that is always taking something that doesn't belong to them. Pleonectes, P-L-E-O-N-E-K-T-A-I-S. Pleonectes is the first category. The second category was an idolater. This isn't just simply someone who worshipped an idol, but this was somebody who was actively involved in the fertility religion in Corinth because that was the kind of idolatry that dominated. So they're not simply involved in going down and just, just offering a sacrifice or praying to an idol, but they were also involved in the cultic prostitution that was involved in the uh, fertility religions of that time. They were an idolater and a swindler, and the word there is harpoxin, and this is somebody who was, uh, that was involved in illegal activity, robbery, uh, thievery, could involve any kind of uh, activity where they were taking money that was not theirs, taking money or goods from someone else. So Paul recognizes the fact that this is going to be a typical characteristic when dealing with unbelievers, and that's not what he's talking about. Verse 11, he clarifies. He says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. And he uses the same word, not to associate, soon on a mignusti. And here it relates to a believer, someone who says that they are a believer. Now, this I, I dislike the translation, a so-called brother, because that indicates that he's not really a believer. But remember, the context is talking about a man in the congregation who is committing a heinous sin by living with his, uh, living with his stepmother. Uh, so he's talking about a believer, but he's talking about someone who is making the claim to be a believer and is truly a believer but is living a lifestyle that is uh, indistinct from those of the unbelievers around them. So he says, I wrote to you not to associate with such a, such a believer. This is the same word that's used in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, where, again, Paul says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with them. That's the same word so that he may be put to shame. That is a recognition of the fact that if you are not uh, attempting to apply doctrine in your life and you are living in clear, overt sin that is obvious to one and all around, now that's the important thing, obvious to one and all around, then you are to, that believers are not to associate with you. And it's not legalism. It's simple matter of wisdom that, first of all, you need to recognize that if you don't want to live like a believer, you really don't want to associate with believers or be around believers. And if you're not applying doctrine, you need to recognize and realize the consequences of your own bad decisions. So Paul recognizes that, that that as believers it is dangerous and it has a a negative impact on the congregation to uh, treat these sins lightly. So he says in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any believer. 
someone who is named a believer, literally, anamazomenos, it's a present uh, passive participle, someone who is called a believer. That is, they are recognized as a believer, uh, as a brother in Christ, not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person. The if there's a third-class condition and it recognizes the, it's a hypothetical situation, it recognizes the reality that a believer can be immoral. A believer can be covetous. This is the same word as in the previous verse, pleonectes. He can be an idolater. A believer can still be an idolater. I, and this is the uh, word idola, idololatres, a worshiper of an idol. Or a reviler. This is a new word that he adds. A reviler is the Greek word loidaros. It means someone who is an abusive, a verbally abusive person. It's not simply somebody who's a gossip, not simply some, simply somebody who is a slanderer, but somebody who it consistently and habitually engages in abusive language and abusive speech, someone who insults, someone who is continuously quarrelsome and angry and evidenced in their, in their speech, not to associate with such a person. Or a drunkard. Now, this is not simply someone who is an alcoholic. See, we live in an age when somehow uh, addiction to alcohol is being termed a disease. The Scripture doesn't term the basic problem as a disease. Remember, what's happened in psychology is, the, is a medical term that relates to something that is specifically caused by bacteria or a virus or some other uh, clear mechanical material cause is then applied and taken out of the realm of science into the realm of personal behavior. And that's why they're called the behavioral sciences, but they're not really sciences except perhaps in the fact that they attempt to use an an empirical methodology in order to come to their conclusions. But uh, psychology comes along and says that alcoholism is a disease. Well, if it's a disease like the flu or a disease like uh, smallpox or something like that, then you ought to be able to find a, a pill, an antibiotic, or some other drug that would stop it. Just take this, go home, take two of these, and tomorrow you won't be an alcoholic anymore. But the problem is that an alcoholic, just like any other sinner, is someone who has a particular a genetic bent, and that is related to their sin nature. That's their area of weakness. They uh, are prone to becoming dependent upon alcohol or or some other drugs. Other people have other things that they try to solve their problems with. This individual is just a little more overt, and so he's trying to solve his problems with alcohol, and so he is continuously uh, drunk in order to handle the difficulties and disappointments of life. And so drunkenness is continuously classified as a sin in Scripture. The underlying problem is not psychological, it is spiritual. Drunkenness is the result of trying to handle either external adversities or self-generated problems in the mind uh, with alcohol, trying to alleviate pain, suffering, or adversity by numbing oneself with the use of alcohol. And the solution is not a 12-step program by going through Alcoholics Anonymous, at least not for the believer. It's not going to be solved by going to meetings, uh, but through Bible doctrine. There may be some help in some of these secular approaches to problem-solving, 
But even at its very best, the statistics are that Alcoholics Anonymous only helps uh, somewhat less than 20% of the people, the alcoholics who go there for, for help. If there's going to be any real help for the believer, the underlying spiritual problems must be dealt with, and that comes only through dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, and application of doctrine. Now, in the ancient world, drinking the drinking of wine was common. This was everyone drank. In fact, it, the, the idea of abstinence was something that was extremely rare, if not socially suspect. So if you were a teetotaler, people in the ancient world would kind of raise their eyebrow at you as being some, somewhat of a uh, someone who was socially inept. But drunkenness is mentioned because it is it is often a root sin that leads to a loss of self-control, a breakdown of the conscience, so that other sins often follow. That is one reason Paul includes it here. Someone who is a drunkard or a swindler. That's our word harpox again. Someone who is involved in illegally or illicitly uh, stealing funds or property from someone else. Not the idea of a swindler is just, we have the idea of a con man in our society. But this could be a anything from uh, a white collar executive who is uh, uh, taking money uh, uh, and embezzling money from the corporation, to a thief who go an armed robber who goes into a bank and tries to uh, steal money at the point of a gun all of which would be included under the concept of harpox. So many of these, if you note, are not only sins, but they also, some of them, involve illegal activity. This is extreme, overt behavior that is obvious to everyone, believer and unbeliever, and these are people who are in violation not only of biblical norms and standards, but the norms and standards of the surrounding culture. And I think that's something that is so often lost in the whole process of church discipline. In so many churches, as soon as they hear about some believer who is shacked up with somebody or they hear of some, some uh, believer who's got a problem with drugs, and immediately they want to start engaging some sort of church disciplinary process because obviously we don't want somebody like that in our church. I remember going when Dan Ingram took a course on 1 Corinthians a couple of years ago, I think it was now, or three years ago, in Greek exegesis in seminary. They got to this passage and they were discussing church discipline and Dan would just call me up in frustration dealing with the superficial legalists in, among the students, not the faculty, but among the students. And he, he told me about one, one guy who was an assistant pastor of a church and said, well, we're really struggling with whether or not to have church discipline on this one guy who comes to the church because he smokes. And Dan said, you know, these people need to just get out a little bit more often and realize what people are struggling with in life. They have such shallow, superficial existences like they just want to divorce themselves from reality altogether. And that is a completely wrong approach to church discipline. Church discipline is not to to try to straighten out every single problem that people may have in life. The purpose in church discipline is not to uh, force everybody into some mold, but to deal with certain extreme, overt behavioral sins 
that bring shame on a congregation or should because they bring shame to the unbelievers. Even unbelievers recognize that it's a problem. And as I stated last time, one probably the most extreme example or the clearest example of this kind of behavior that I see today is the problem of pedophilia in the Roman Catholic Church. It's that kind of behavior that we're talking about here, not the, the, the behavior of just committing certain sins or somebody who habitually has a problem with the sin. And just in the process of sanctification, they haven't grown out of that yet, and eventually they will. So we have to be careful. We have to deal with things on the basis of grace orientation, but that doesn't mean that you treat sin in a cavalier manner or treat it lightly. I've only had one instance in my career as a pastor where we have had to go through the process of church discipline. There was one situation in this church a number of years ago, I understand, where someone had to be removed because they were teaching a doctrine that was contrary to the doctrinal statement. And I had a situation that I... Uh, at the time, I wasn't sure which way to go on. I struggled with it. We event- we dealt with it. It took a year to deal with it. And it was a case where a guy in the congregation was a deacon, uh, just up one day, left his wife and five kids. And, that w- and he would not engage in any more responsibility towards his family. And he wanted to continue to come to church as if he had done nothing wrong. And we spent a year talking with him and trying to work out various uh, solutions to the problem. And finally, we decided that it was necessary to tell him that he needed to no longer come to, come to church because he was just trying to justify his own sinfulness and act like the sin uh, did not matter. And uh, the years went by. Uh, the problem today in conducting a lot of church discipline is that unlike the early New Testament period where there were only one or two other congregations you could go to and nobody else knew what was going I mean, everybody knew what was going on, so if you were... Uh, asked to leave a congregation, you were really uh, divorced from Christianity completely. Whereas today, most people just go down the street to another church and act like it really doesn't matter. Well, I was told that this individual came back about two or three years ago, and he apparently couldn't track me down, but he tracked down all of the other leaders in the church and expressed the fact that that was something that ate away at him for 15 years and finally realized that we were absolutely right and that he was wrong, and so he straightened out his life. But that is the purpose of discipline. Not every situation ends up like that, uh, but some do. But it's still something that should be entered into uh, in a very serious manner, and it should only involve uh, serious and egregious egregious, uh, breaches of conduct. Now, in verse 12, Paul says, Paul begins to tie this together, and he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He goes on to explain the fact that this doesn't relate to unbelievers because uh, that's not the role of the believers to judge outsiders. And when he says, what is it, literally he says, what is it to me to judge outsiders? And the me is in an unemphatic position, which means it could be applied to any believer. In other words, what role is it of any believer to be in a position of evaluating outsiders? And all through this passage, we have the same verb for judging, crino. Now, at this point, we need to ask the question, just exactly what does crino mean? And crino means has several meanings. It has the idea of 
legitimate, the legitimate use, which relates to evaluation. You always hear some superficial Christians say, well, Bible says, judge not that ye be not judged. So Jesus said, I shouldn't judge. So we're going to interpret all of these passages on church discipline on the basis of Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. And that's a complete misunderstanding of that passage, not to mention the fact that it's invalid hermeneutics. Jesus is talking in Matthew 7 about personal criticism. And that is one meaning of crino. It also means to evaluate. And believers are expected to evaluate other believers in certain contexts. You are to evaluate a man who is going to be a deacon, whether or not he meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. If he, if you're not supposed to evaluate a man according to those criteria, then why are they listed? So you're, that's not judging. That's not negative. You're not being critical. You're not trying to run him down, be engaged in gossip or slander. It is the application of doctrine. So one concept is evaluation. Another concept is, is legitimate judging in the sense of reaching some sort of decision related to church discipline. And that's positive. And then you have the negative use, uh, personal criticism that you find in Matthew Chapter seven. We are prohibited from being from being involved in this kind of negative personal criticism where you're running someone down in terms of gossip or slander or maligning. But there is a legitimate role of evaluation, which is what Paul indicates in verse twelve. What have I to do with judging or evaluating outsiders, that is unbelievers? Do you not judge those who are within the church? And he uses the negative Ooh in the Greek. In Greek, there are two negatives, ooh and may, and ooh implies a positive answer. So he says, when he says, do you not judge those who are within the church, he is expecting a positive answer. Yes, we do judge those who are uh, inside the church. There is a level of evaluation that should take place in relationship to uh, believers inside the church. And that is what the whole issue of church discipline uh, relates to. And it has a function in terms of preparing us for our role in the millennial kingdom. And then in verse 13, Paul says, But those who are outside the church, God judges. Therefore, and here's the conclusion, put away from yourself the evil person. And that is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. He is applying the law and recognizing that there are certain sins, and when believers get involved with those sins, because they are an affront to the unbeliever around, because they are overt, because he's, that individual isn't willing to recognize it's a sin and it's, he's reveling in it. We're not talking about something that is hidden away, something that's a mental attitude sin. We're talking about something that is is a gross sin that is obvious to one and all. It is publicly known and publicly obvious, then it should be dealt with. Paul is not arguing for some sort of superficial legalistic separation here, that is, separation from any believer who commits just about any sin from your list of nasty nine or the terrible two or whatever they are. Secondly, Paul is dealing with what is clearly seen and known and sin that is being rationalized and justified. 
It's a situation where the clear standards of Scripture are not only being ignored, but reversed. And this is a role of the church, and that role has to do with, and it is a preparation for a future role that believers will engage in during the millennial kingdom. Skip down to chapter 6, verse 3, where Paul is going to deal with the next issue relating to judgment, which has to do with dealing with uh, interpersonal conflict within the congregation. And there he says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? In the millennial kingdom, believers are going to be in a role, in a position, where in our ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, we're going to be judging angels. We will be judging the fallen angels. Remember, there is a future judgment for them, and we will be involved in that along with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will also be involved in executing judgment on believers, that is, the believers who have mortal bodies and get involved in problems during the uh, millennial kingdom. Now, what is it that prepares you and me to be able to function in that role in the millennial kingdom? It's what we learn. It's the doctrine we learn and apply today. But the Paul's whole point is, if you're not learning how to be a biblically qualified evaluator, judge, now, then you're not going to be prepared to judge the angels in eternity. And that is the underlying rationale here is that this is part of our training, part of the believer's training for the future. And learning when not to judge is as important as learning that there are times when we should officially be involved in that judgment. And he's going to deal with one area of application in chapter 6. And chapter 6 begins in the first uh, seven verses with dealing with uh, the problem that apparently they were had as litigious a society at that time as we have today, and one believer in the congregation that felt like he had been defrauded or offended by another member of the congregation was uh, would bring a lawsuit against that individual. And this is what Paul addresses in verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter or having an issue against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints. Now, this gets into the whole issue of whether or not a believer should be involved in taking another believer to, uh, to court over a lawsuit. And we will begin that next time, and we get into some interesting application of it by the time we get into verse verse 9, so it may take us a little while to go through this, but um, this is a problem, many, especially in our society today, because many things that we are engaged in in our society, in order to carry out or fulfill the function, we have to go, be involved in court. For example, the probate of wills or getting a divorce. Uh, these things are, can only be legitimized in our society a certain way. So there are times, I believe, in our society where there is a legitimate function of uh, being involved in, in what might be classified as a lawsuit. But as we'll see next time, there are, uh, there are ways to handle that. So we'll come back and study this next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to recognize that, uh, that you have dealt with the sin problem, and it was originally dealt with by Christ on the cross, 
and that we were saved, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for the purpose of good works. However, there are times when there are rebellious believers that come into any congregation and create disruption and problems, and this must be dealt with according to the principles of your word and according to the principles of grace. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who perhaps has never dealt with a sin problem in their own life, never dealt with uh, the, their relationship to Jesus Christ, they're unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they will make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means that no one, no matter how good they are, no matter how wonderful a person they are, can ever be good enough to please God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute, that on the basis of his righteousness, we would be saved by simply accepting that by faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for us, that he is the solution to the sin problem, and that on the basis of his work on the cross, we have eternal life. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. The omniscient God knows what you are trusting in for your salvation, and if your trust is in Christ alone, then you are regenerate, you are declared righteous, and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.